0: You take uh, a project team A and project team B so the project team A is better at estimating how much time a project will take for the other team and vice versa this is something that maybe you could apply that instead of planning your own project so you ask project manager or project team that are doing pretty much the similar thing to look into your project and make the, uh, the schedule
1: Hello and welcome to DevOps Sauna. Norman Kurth, who is known for project retrospectives, has said, Regardless of what we discover, we understand and truly believe that everyone did the best job they could, given what they knew at the time, their skills and abilities, the resources available and the situation at hand. The problem is that being incomplete is something inherent in being a human, and this incompleteness permeates to our everyday work. One way this is seen is through what's called behavioral biases, irrational beliefs or behaviors that can unconsciously influence our decision-making process. We invited Eva Höglin, Atlassian software and product management expert, and Markus Kanerva, a behavioral consultant and a senior lecturer in my alma mater, Laurea University of Applied Sciences. It's a fascinating journey to how we think and behave and what we can do about it. Thank you, Eva. Thank you, Markus, for joining.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for the invitation,
1: Laurie. I remember when we had this um, initial talk with Eva about this this topic, it almost came up by accident. Like We were having a chat with Eva on sporting things like, okay, what should we talk and what is Eva's area of expertise? And then we sort of found out that both of us are interested in behavioral economics and Eva has been doing her lessons uh, in in some other part of literature, and I have read my books, and then we figured that hey, how about we do something like that? And for a long time, we were thinking what the headline would be, but today we are talking about behavioral biases in product management and what to do about it. And uh, the audience who are listening to this, don't worry about if if behavioral biases doesn't ring a bell, it will become evident in the course of time. Suffice is to say that behavioral economics is is much more than just biases, but biases is probably the the approachable way. Because we can make it easily understandable what kind of glitches people have in their way of thinking and then how to make people aware of those misconceptions and, and maybe how to do something about them. And um, our today's episode has been organized in such a way that Eva has kindly identified the real life settings where she has seen those biases, or that there is a possibility that the bias can completely lead the situation astray. And then we are going to have a discussion about that, and Markus, naturally, you're going to bring in your subject matter expertise, as you said, not from software engineering, but from the behavior of, of people and organizations. So without further ado, maybe we go directly to challenge one, which here is labeled as judging on the optimal set of new products or features. And I'll hand over to you, Eva, for introduce that in detail.
2: Mm, thank you. And those five challenges, they actually follow a kind of, it's starting with, uh, I mean, defining the products and then it goes along with implementing and delivering products. So it follows like the delivery, the software delivery lifecycle. So we're starting in, in, when you're in step one of this journey. So we, we have the pro, the busy product manager and he's trying to get the new product roadmap ready. But as we all know, as you become manager, you become increasingly busy. So there's back to back with uh, important meetings. He's, he's rushing, I mean, his experience, he has done this plenty of times. So he's tweaking and adding and trying to, to get this product and features as best as he can. And I mean, this goes on for a number of iterations, maybe a couple of years. But then suddenly there's a kind of disruption in the market and and the manager realizes, wow, the competitors, they are rushing already along another path. And I'm, I'm here. I have just followed downstream and now I'm more or less alone here. So I think that that's sort of what I've seen happening. So what, what could be behind this kind of behavior?
1: Yeah. Thank you. Where, where should we start? Maybe give floor to Markus first and have her st- his uh, stream of consciousness around this.
0: Um, yes. It's actually very interesting in uh, how you always want to add new features. There's a funny story about a Lego uh, motorcycle, which had 15 parts in uh, 1988. And if you take the similar Lego uh, motorcycle today, or at least in 2013, it had 29 different parts and this means that back in the late 80s you were able to put the pieces together without any 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 guidance or or, or notes but today you need to have some kind of instructions that you can you can do that you are definitely not alone with this type of uh, we could call it as a a sickness kind of uh, where you just keep on adding features and features it's, it's quite natural because you don't want to, you're kind of like, um, you see what your competitors are doing and they adding features and you want to keep up with the race. So you end up actually doing pretty much the same, same product that everybody, everybody else is doing. And that's quite natural because we don't want to have a feeling of regret. We don't want to regret that we missed out uh, a feature there that somebody really wanted there. And uh, it's also uh, very natural that when you get feedback from the users, you just add those on because you want to you know, be customer-oriented or, or user-oriented. But by doing that, you actually might end up doing something that is not anymore user-centered or user-oriented. Therefore, it's very, very important that you, you, you have very good focus on what is, is needed. Back in the days, Henry Ford said, or it, it has been said that he, he told that if he had asked his consumers before he started manufacturing cars that what, what the consumers wanted, so they would have answered that, well, we would like to have faster horses. So they didn't have any idea what there was for them and what was available. So in that sense, the product manager should have also a um, clear vision of what he or she is doing. So here are just some thoughts about this uh, about this
1: challenge, number one. Yeah, I remember this. I think it was a cartoon where, where somebody had lost their keys and uh, the guy was walking back and forth in the street and looking for the keys and uh, he was looking at those keys under a, a particular lamp post in the street because it was nighttime and uh, it was pretty much dark and there was one lamp that was lighting a certain region of the street and and then somebody came up to him and and asked like okay what are you doing and he said i've lost my keys then the other the stranger asked do you know if you lost them under this particular lamp post and uh, he answered that no i didn't lose them here but But here is enough light so I could search them from here. And, um, and I, this sort of, I recall this cartoon when I was listening to this description where maybe the sort of defining on the optimal set of products is done within the realms of what we know rather than within the realms of what is necessary. Uh, And therefore, the, you know, the, the visibility becomes even better on a smaller and smaller business area where eventually you have perfect visibility on absolutely nothing, something like that. Have you seen something like that happening in product management?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I've been seeing. Uh, And like, you're doing things in small steps and you said increasingly small steps and you're very busy, so it's very human that trying to define something completely new that, that it, it's, it's becomes like an uphill battle for you within your organization. And, and it, it, as humans, I don't think we like to be like alone. We want to belong to a group and do what everyone else is doing subconsciously. And I'm thinking about the car industry and like the, the electrical vehicles that we see now, the surge in demand and everyone want to go there. But there was a lone player and I think many didn't think it would succeed or go that way and they didn't want to change their big uh, I mean developing hardware and tools for the product factory lines and production it's huge shift to change from diesel or gas engines to to electric vehicles but then suddenly everyone needs to go there so so that that kind of um, i i think you 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 need to dare to go uphill dare to surround yourself with people that don't always agree with you and uh, even if it's harder you don't have really the time but it's it, in the end it will open your eyes i think and and so you don't end up like with with uh, the head stuck in the sand too long
1: so love your products but be honest about what they are missing out
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I came across an interesting like act as a startup. And I guess that's it. it, I I read an MIT article about it. And I guess it's going to be very hard for big corporations. But but that was like one view or solution that that I was reading about that maybe create a separate organization that is small and they get the, the task to sort of go this different way, more daring way instead of trying to shift the whole big company.
1: Yeah, there's a cultural part to the dimension to this where um, I remember, I think it was the former CEO mm-hmm. of Kone, Matti Alahuhta, who said that he always thanks people who bring bad news or sad news, which would be endorsing a culture where uh, it is important that everybody knows about things which are not Right, And therefore, people would strive to share that information, which is not right. And then you would be earlier on fixing that. That that was something that came to my mind. Now, something, Markus, that also came to my mind, which I think you have investigated, is then the prospect theory from Kahneman and Trisk, who basically says that the negative impact feels worse than the equivalent uh, magnitude of positive impact. And I was thinking from a product management perspective, if we follow this this line of prospect theory which is that if you haven't achieved what you are striving for every improvement feels better than if you have already achieved what you are striving for and you're just going like uh, above your baseline and if that is true then the question follows that why on earth product management then strives for additional features once they have satisfied the sort of minimum viable product or like a good enough product. And if you, Markus, can follow my line of thinking here?
0: Yes, and uh, I was thinking about marketing and brand marketing. How it seems that every time there's a new brand manager for a for a certain product, brand managers want to change the brand image. And uh, that's very strange, but understandable behavior because you want to leave your mark. But from the consumer perspective, that's very irritating. That you've learned to to visualize how the product looks like, and you go to the store, and then all of a sudden, the look changed, and you can't find it there anymore. And uh, therefore, I I I have to say that I really admire those brands that are sticking with their old designs, and I think they are doing very very v- wisely there. So somehow, you want to leave your mark. I could imagine that the firm manager kind of like wants to leave her mark and also to kind of like show that I'm, I'm important, I've been adding these things, I've been doing all this stuff. We know from World Bank, those type of development banks, they just keep on kind of like the managers that they keep on sending money out for stats how they have been ranked, how much investments you give or how much uh, aid you're handing over. So there's like no, there's no incentive to cut back. So maybe you, you should look into the incentives of product managers. Are the best product managers those who add features? Or is that kind of like the culture that you have or the ones who are doing nothing? So it feels kind of strange that the best product manager was the person who didn't do absolutely anything but the product, just stick with all the old features, and so so. I guess you're getting my point.
2: Yeah, I mean I, 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 that, that's definitely an interesting view, and uh, and also thinking about. <laughs> Sometimes maybe also we have a lot of engineers, and especially, of course, within software and hardware development, and maybe they think, I mean, they are technicians, they love new technology and techniques, and maybe they overthink what people would like in terms of technology. And maybe people want something stupid. They don't want, like, tools to improve their sort of business performance. They want stupid games instead. I mean, like, I'm thinking that you should also use as as. Even if you shouldn't just listen to the users, as you mentioned with Ford, that they wanted a horse-driven car, but still try things with real use techniques as user personas, try to imagine who are users. And try early testing of, of, of your ideas on real people because maybe they would just, they will hate what you are suggesting if you put it in the hands of them. So people don't, as we are talking about today, people don't behave rationally. So they they don't want this super technique feature, but they want something funny.
0: But that's, that's also very understandable that engineers want to add things. So I would say that we people, as, uh, kind of like as a human race, we like to play, we like to invent, invent things, we like new things, and that's good because I enjoy my car much better than I would enjoy a horse, and and in that sense, so there needs to be a room for going forward and uh, adding new features, but kind of like having the the focus on on uh, on the usability and why we are doing things. So in, in In many situations, you are, you have the correct starting point, but somehow things are starting to go wrong when things are actually pretty good. So you need to have this kind of like a sense of knowing that when we need to shift bit again and not just being incremental anymore.
1: I remember. Daniel Kahneman was talking about this phenomenon that when you ask a question from somebody and if they don't understand that question, then they will replace that question with an easier version of the similar question that they can respond. And then they answer that question instead. And that can be very, very treacherous for product management who wants to get like realistic feedback of the people and people are genuinely trying to do their best and trying to answer the question, but they just are not aware that they are not answering the question that was prompted.
0: And if you turn that thing the other way around, so a lot of time people are asking a whole different question than what they are actually looking for to get an answer. So kind of like we go and ask, like, "What are you doing tonight?" Instead of saying that I would like to go and. Play tennis with you. <laughs> this is a very simple example, but just stop and think: What are your questions, and what what is the information you are really looking for? And uh, maybe you should really think more how you post your questions, like what is your real questions. And and, not, and I'm not just saying that you should go directly to the point, but saying that just just like think what you want, and what you're really asking. So I think that could uh, make the communication a lot more
1: effective as well. That's a wonderful segue for our second challenge, which uh, where we put our hypothetical product manager um, in the role of trying to convey the product roadmap to their teams.
2: Yeah, I f- felt like really trying into the next step then we we now heard the challenge of producing the roadmap and then we come to the, let's now, uh, the, the manager's really enthusiastic and come up with a really good roadmap and let's let's bring this to the teams now who will implement this. Uh, and you tell it, I mean, you have all this information in your head you gathered throughout the period, you, you prepared the roadmap and you, you tell it and you, you maybe bring a, presentation you have prepared uh, or specification. But then you're really, really <laughs> surprised because people have only picked up a fraction of what what, what you're trying. I mean, all, all the information that's in your head, it's is not what's coming out. And it's not definitely what they are picking up. I, I've seen this very, very clearly. So uh, this is a real challenge, I think, that people have limited how they pick up what your information is. So... That's sort of the next challenge.
0: I'm, I'm actually jumping to the solution for that uh, in, in a way, because what you should be doing is, is keep on repeating the message over and over again. So we tend to think that after we've said something once or maybe twice, so we think that the other end understood what we meant or they are able to recall it uh, perfectly. So you need to maybe not use the exact same words, but keep on repeating what is, what is your main message and, and, and what is your plan. The other issue here could be that if people were not part of, part of the solution, if they were not part of the plan, so they might uh, behave in a, in a way what we can call not invented here bias. So it's pretty self-explanatory, but if somebody else came up with the solution or with the plan, so we tend not to stick with that plan because we were not part of creating the plan. Back in the days, I had some ideas for a startup and I, I discussed with, uh, with some of my friends who were working in startups and I asked like, so should I keep the idea? With myself, or, or kind of like discuss it about with other people, and the advice that I got was just just, just go and discuss and talk. People have their own ideas that they love, and, uh, and they don't they don't steal your idea because they didn't invent the idea. And uh, afterwards, I, I I came across some studies about the topic that dealt with this not invented here effect, and I was like, yeah, okay, now I remember what my my friend was telling me. And I think that's that's pretty that's true, but we still tend to think that somebody will steal my idea. And uh, I think it's not invented here. We can use this this bias as, as a some kind of like an insurance that we go forward with our uh, with our our, our ideas and, and and share those and get some feedback and and make those ideas even even better.
1: You could again flip the table and ask what like what could a product manager do to uh, sort of encourage people to adopt their idea like are there some psychological devices that they could like consciously employ to to circumvent that not invented here
2: i'm sort of thinking and it's something i read in a book <laughs> but it's like you have to to evoke their emotions i mean if if i mean i've seen so film clips where, where you, you ask people to watch a number of players, like in, in, in a football game, whatever. And then behind a gorilla, a, a human dressed as a gorilla is, is, is there as well. And they don't see it. They, they, they're so, sort of focused on, Looking at something that they were expected to look at, so they don't even hear or listen to anything else. So if you could make them snap out of, of uh, and, and don't jump to conclusions, because maybe they hear the start of what you're saying, and then their brains trying to find uh, okay, what do I know about this? And then they jump to a conclusion about something they believe is what you're trying to tell, but it's you're trying to tell something completely different. So. To, to the emotions, get it, get it very vivid, the, the energy. And as you obviously said, Marcus, that they should have been part of it in the first place because then they invest in it emotionally and feel like it's their own idea, maybe even. So that's something I have been thinking about a lot.
1: I was also thinking how to... It probably sounds naive when I say that, but how instead of telling what you have in your mind how do you structure that information sharing in such a way that people discover it themselves? So let's suppose for a moment that you are a product manager and you have your backlog and you have like so and so many items in a roadmap and you probably have even built your release, like this release is going to include these features. But how about you would turn it around and go back to your team and say, okay, you have to define what's in the release, even though the fact is they are not. But purely for the sake of engagement and, and buy-in and commitment. It's like, here are the features, like go, go figure what they mean. Here is everything you need. Work together, working like in smaller groups and then put them in the prioritized order, for instance, because in order for somebody to put something in the prioritized order for the sake of argument, it re- requires them to comprehend them in a, in a relatively deep detail before they can make any decision on whether that is more important or that. And then then you probably get your teams back and they say, okay, we think this should be the order. And, and no, we think this should be the order. And then the product manager might, well, in, in the best case, they might even learn something new that they hadn't been thinking before. But again, I'm probably speaking against my better knowledge. Maybe something like this is already a product management practice.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean I'm mean, i thinking about the big room planning practice in, in, in SAFE. I mean, I think part of that I think that's more or less the best part of safe that you bring people together because normally maybe though may know those people, software industry, they, they sit with their headset on and they code and they do their stuff, but bringing them together, they forces them to communicate and, and human direct interaction is much more strong to, to get people, I think to, to listen and, and pick up information and in such big room planning you have the product managers presenting in, in, so, so I think that's that brings more energy as well instead of just getting something sent out and you're supposed to read it yourself so that, that can be a challenge I guess now with the remote uh, PI planning we, we see it's, it's very important to not, to not let go of that important part of human uh, interaction and connection I think in, in that setting Hi
1: again changing the way of working in a large enterprise is challenging, especially when it comes to habits and culture. In her talk, Eva refers quite often to SAFE, scale agile framework. If your teams want to become better in product management, or if you want to adopt values, principles and practices of agile framework in a company, I'd like to refer you to Eficode's consulting and academy practice. You can find the links in the show notes. Now, let's get back to the discussion. I remember one study which was completely unrelated, but it was when you take people who participate, basically they go to a concert to listen to music, a live music performed by the original band. And some of those people have listened to the album before and they like, they know that music from the album. And then some of those people hear it for the first time. And then in the live performance, there are going to be glitches in the performance that don't exist in the album. So the recording is inevitably more perfect than the live presentation. And if you then look at the reaction of those people, and I don't remember which was the method that they used, but you could basically observe their reactions as to the the notes that were not in tune or mistakes in lyrics, which would be obvious or anything like that. Those people who had heard the album before did not react to those glitches in live performance as strongly as those people who didn't. The interpretation was that they were they knew what they were expecting. And uh, the information and uh, the memory that they had from the album, sort of real time mixed with their perception of the live performance... And if that is true, then it follows a question that if you want to convey something, maybe you should just talk it through and record it in a, like, a half an hour conversation, like a monologue. But turn on the record and say, you know, we're going to have a meeting next week and they have an important decision to make. So let me just go on stream of consciousness and explain what we're going to do. And then just let it come up. Let it come. Record it. And send it to people, and when they take their dogs on a walk or whatever, when emptying their dishwasher, they can listen to your monologue. And when they come to the meeting, they have already been exposed to the substance, and they have had been able to do sort of um, unconscious deliberation or, or anything like that. And they would they would be able to approach that content in a different way. And for, given the technology, like I mean, it's incredibly affordable to do something like this. Everyone has the mechanics to do it. Marcus looks like uh, he's thinking a lot now.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking a lot. I'm just thinking that 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 sounds basically a a great idea, but I wouldn't want to spend all of my evenings walking my dog and listening to my boss explaining something that he will explain next day. So there could be kind of a reactance process starting up, and uh, I might end up doing. The absolute opposite thing, but um, but yeah, theoretically, yes, it would work perfectly.
1: You could test that with your students.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true.
1: So moving on to the challenge three, as, as you said, Eva, we are advancing in the product management. So underestimating how much time and effort it will take to build new products and features.
2: Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is. I think this is a, the bias. I'm less least susceptible to myself so maybe this one is what I see most clearly happening uh, because I'm a time pessimist I mean I always prepare for extra time and put a margin on everything and if I think it takes one week I say two weeks to to be able to for sure deliver and not uh, disappoint anyone but everyone they are really underestimating how much time it takes I mean, as you say previously, Marcus, that people like to do new things. They like to innovate. I mean, they they jump on these new features and they tell the product manager, yeah, it, it'll only take me a day to do this. I mean, th- this is really something that's easy to do. And then, hey, do you really think it's just one day? I'm always asking, you know, this will affect uh, these 10 existing features. You know we need to do this API integration or this documentation, and we need to regression build a regression test or rebuild whatever. Will it only take eight hours? Oh, maybe not. And then they and then next feature same thing. Then I start. I don't want to repeat this again. But do you really think it only takes one day to do this? But because the product manager they want to believe them, because we all know it's very expensive to build new products. And uh, it would be very nice if it was quick and and cheap. I'm really surprised that it happens all the time with the same team repeating and repeating. So, Marcus, do you do you have any thoughts about well, this um, bias?
0: <laughs> I think this is something that we come across in our everyday lives when you read news. So we always get the news about a, a huge infrastructure project that took. Sort of Many years longer than what that was expected, and and it cost hundreds of millions of euros of Swedish pounds more than any anybody ever imagined. So sometimes we get news about the project that was finished on time, but that is that is huge news, and um, you have to deal with that pretty much every day in your in your work when you have a lot of small projects and not that small in many cases too but um, so this is a very very common phenomenon and and, and, and Lauri mentioned uh, Daniel Daniel Kahneman who was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2002 and um, he actually tells a story how he was part of a team writing a textbook related to education and um, uh, he had been studying how people plan, how how they spend their time, and um, however, this group of writers they were not able to plan correctly how much time it would take to finish the book. Well, what actually happened was that they never finished the book. But but what what they have what the, what the researchers have learned is that if you take uh, a project team A and project team B, so the project team A is better at uh, estimating how much time a project will take for the other team and vice versa. So this is something that maybe you could apply that instead of planning your own project, so you ask uh, a project manager or project team that are doing pretty much the similar thing to look into your project and make the uh, the schedule. there's um, there's a bias called uh, overconf- overconfidence and also over optimism which explain explain why this happens. So we are over optimistic in, in, in many many situations how we how we use our time but in, in also many other situations. But I think that is very good for 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 the humankind that we have been optimistic in, in several situations. I mean if you just take the base rate for any startup and, and apply that information. So we would actually have zero startups. So we need to have this optimism for, uh, always within us.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like what you say there because, uh, I mean, we have a bridge between Sweden and Denmark and I'm sure it wouldn't have been built if we had, had looked at the original time plan and, and budget. So I'm I'm kind of, I mean, I, I really agree with you. Sometimes you just need to go, but sometimes maybe you need to. I mean, some practical things, solution I've seen is that, I mean, if you look at the velocity of the team, what has been the historical, what have they been delivering in the past? In, in general, how long time does it take for them to build a feature? So looking at historical figures could help you to overcome this because sometimes you really need to get things done you know kind of time frame and and, and also to apply a kind of budget if if we believe this is a business case for this feature, this is how much we will earn. so and we we believe it will take a certain amount of time to do. If we do that triple that time, it will not no longer be worth doing. So then it's good to have very, very frequent communication back to the product manager and from the team that okay, we, we got into this technical difficulty. And we think it will be twice as expensive should we continue or should we just maybe it wasn't such a good idea in the end depending on on the cost
1: yeah and, and countering that i mean there is a pure financial way of countering that is is doing the sensitivity analysis like imagine that you spent this much money and time on this and imagine that it would yield this kind of returns and if you estimate pessimistic minus 20 figure minus minus 20 percent figure on the returns and then you are equally pessimistic on the the other side then would it still make sense so basically you can look at like how badly a project can go for it to still make sense and then then look at like okay how, how could you live with those numbers and I remember another unrelated example about there's this um, Net Promoter Score figure NPS, which every one of us have exposed. Uh, like all the companies always want to ask at in the in the range of one to ten, how likely you would recommend this company. Mm-hmm. And people are generally like awful at estimating their future behavior. They're much better at estimating their past behavior because it like for the fact that it has happened. So you could ask like, why on earth anyone would ever want to estimate a project? You should rather ask, I think some, either of you said, given something like this happening in the past, how long did it take? And then you would have to come up with an accurate evidence of a similar project rather than trying to put your, your best effort down. But I think it generally has to do with the fact that people are pathetic at uh, estimating their future behavior.
2: And, and I, I, I think, I mean, th- this is at the core of agile development, as I've seen it and experienced it throughout the year. Because I really believe in those principles that you, you you don't plan or estimate a big project in advance if if you can avoid it, because you you want to get started. Because it's when you get started that's when you get into the really difficult parts. You you cannot imagine that in advance. That I mean, how, who know knew about this pandemic or who knew about any other big disruptive happenings, so your plan if even if you have a forecast and a plan, don't expect to be able to stick to it because you, you need to be prepared to respond to change in in the environment and uh, i'm I'm going back to to electric vehicles that the same <laughs> or sibling company that builds the rockets <laughs> they they build actually these rockets in iterations they they build it and the first iteration they 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 <laughs> Let it go off and then it comes down like rapid, unplanned disarray or disassembly, as I learned it, it is called, and it just crashes. But they, they go the full end-to-end cycle, even if, even with a space rocket. So I think we should be able to do that with software. Iterate frequent feedback loops, get started. Then you will get the feedback and you will be able to adjust and not do some, something big and try to sort of plan very rigid plan in advance.
0: I, I I agree, I agree, but I would like to remind also about an effect called the sunk cost effect. Now this is this is kind of like an evolving process where you start with your project and you plan, okay we will put ten million euros for the project and it will last two years. So after two years you've spent ten million euros but you haven't finished what you were planning and you think, oh, we've put so much money and so much energy and we are very, very, very close. So let's, let's go for another year. And you go for the third year and you put a couple of millions there and, uh, well, you know, the features things and all this, what we have discussed happened. And after the third year, you're just like, we got so close again, but we really need to put another million here. And what happens that at the end, when you get the thing done, hopefully, it took double the time and double the money. And uh, and maybe you should have stopped after year two and start doing something else, which maybe would have been financially a better deal and more fun for everybody, because you are not just working on a topic after year after year. And this is the one reason why sometimes it is wise to have a new CEO because the the new CEO, if it's coming outside of the of the company, uh, he's not in love with any project, so he can stop financing those projects where you have this sunk cost effect. In those situations, it actually can um, can be a wise wise move. But in uh, in that sense, you know, you should take a pause and look how much you spend and really think like, okay. Should we stop doing this? Is it really called the right direction? Could we use these resources for something something else? And uh, I'm pretty sure we all experienced these type of projects.
1: We, we all have.
2: Yeah, definitely, yeah.
1: Yeah, great. Moving on to the second to the last challenge, which is a large set of dependent teams, large scale cooperation and complex processes slowing the deliveries down.
2: Yeah, this is something I'm, I mean, the, the recent years been thinking a lot about because I've, I've seen organizations and been part of them myself. I mean, you, 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 you follow the, the mainstream. You, you scale your agile way of working. You, you, your platform is a state of the art, loosely coupled services. Uh, and, uh, you practice DevOps. You, you do everything right based on theory and practice, but some, but still it, it's. There's so many dependencies. You you sort of get stuck. You 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 get tangled in, in, in the team A need to le- deliver to team B, who need to deliver to team C, etc. and then it's it's just slowing down. Uh, so, so this I think is a big big challenge as we see today.
1: What in our behaviour goes wrong when this happens? Like is this a is, is this a result of a system, or is this result of of people's behaviors. And and if it's a letter then what can we do about it?
0: So something that happens very frequently when you have a lot of different parties involved is that, that for instance, if if you know there are different teams working for uh, uh, some bugs or something in the the system, so you're not really doing your best because you have the backup who will do that. So if there are a lot of, lot of responsible teams or, or people, so you may end up thinking that, well, I don't need to really put my 100% here because I know the other person is there and, and, and he will check this and, and so on. So actually it could help to reduce the amount of people or both teams. So then you really have to step up and, and, and do your part and be really, really careful that not saying that you should really have too few people because you really can't see all the, all the mistakes there or you can't predict everything by yourself. But finding the balance, so adding, adding more participants, uh, I, I don't think that's always the, the, the right solution. But somehow that's what we, we think very often that, OK, we are running late. Uh, we need
2: more people than we are just adding the complexity. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. I mean, one solution that I see is to to try to keep things as simple as stupid as possible. You, I mean, just use these complex. If, if you really need it, can it be simplified? Always try to simplify things. And I, I'm experienced that. I mean, over the years, I have myself become better at communicating with people. I, I also used to be a more developer kind of person liking to sit by my own desk and solve problems. But I realized you have to get up and talk to other people, especially in other teams, because you can find a very simple solution for how to do things together. But I think that, I mean, if if you have so many dependencies, it requires so much communication, which I think I believe most people, they don't feel comfortable or they don't really see the need to communicate as much with other persons as as needed in that kind of setting. So I think trying to optimize the the flow of communication among the teams, I think, could be one solution. Like, how do you organize the the human communication between the teams, not just the technology and tooling?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking whether communication is part of the solution if it's part of the problem and of course it's not either or but sometimes because because oftentimes when we don't know what's going on and we try to fix it the the knee-jerk reaction is we need more communication isn't it like think of any workshop where you have come together with your colleagues to spend a day and you how do we like how do we become better then almost invariably somebody comes with up with the suggestion that we need to be better in communicating it's about the
0: information and how much information you, you have. We are getting way too much information every day. And, uh, but we, we have a tendency to think that my piece of information is very important. Well, you know, it's coming, coming from me. So this must be very important, but we don't realize that it's not the, the other end of doesn't think the same way. And, 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 and so. I would advise to really stick with the, just the necessary information. We know the type of person in every organization who wants to know everything about everything. And they think if they don't know everything about everything, the culture is not open enough, visible, and they always call for more openness and all that. But a, a normal person is happy to have just enough information. But this is not i'm not solving what is the right amount of information here and then you have to really have the trial and error and and and, and discuss and ask like so did you get enough information what information you missed what you didn't really need and, and so on so that you can really find the balance
2: i mean i have two thoughts here and and one thing I mean, what I like about DevOps and that uh, sort of how to, I mean, it's the automation part. Sometimes I feel like it's better to try to automate as much as possible because then you don't need to talk so much about it all the time. Sort of uh, eliminate the the unnecessary human interaction or intervention wherever possible to to automate. And the other part is that I've frequently seen that There might be one team member in one team, they they are stuck and they are frustrated because they didn't get what they expected from another team, but they haven't actually talked to the other team. So I've been just, you know, picked up what they they are lacking. I went to 10 desks down the the corridor and then I asked the other team, they say that they didn't get this and this and this and they they got stuck. Can Can you do it this way instead? Because it will be much, much smoother for them. And then, of course... I mean, it's not about talking so much, but just make simple checklists or things like that. I've frequently seen that how much that can help. And I'm honestly surprised that it was so easy that I could just go and help them ask another person, what do you need to be able to deliver efficiently and why they didn't get up and, and do that themselves.
0: Back in the days when we were all working in the office environment, Hopefully we will do that at least partly <laughs> in the future. So I remember maybe this was like about ten years ago, there was an idea about having an email free day once a week and kind of like forcing people to walk to the colleague and really talk about the matter instead of just, you know, writing your your stuff on your email. And um, so maybe if, Thinking about the communication ways, so uh, but it's we know there's uh there's tons of different communications platforms that are evolving all the time, and, and so we uh, it seems that we still really haven't found the way what works best for humans how to communicate. So we might we might we seem to be going back to the hero clips to think about the messages we send a lot of uh, smileys and stuff. So
1: yeah. Rounding up, we are going to the last one. M- managers complaining about team's performance. So let's let's go that through and uh, and finish this off on time.
2: Yeah, this is something. I mean, the team is in the, at the core of AGI development, and it's 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 correctly so because I mean, if you have a team of of motivated individuals, they have the right set of tools and support, that they, they will perform brilliantly. But it sometimes doesn't happen, and I I I mean. You hear, hear team, people asking, "Why aren't they self-organizing? So why aren't they delivering and expected?" So, so I've seen that frequently. So any thoughts from you there, Marcus, on what can be at, at play here?
0: There's a rule called regression to the mean, which means that a team or a person might be overachieving for a certain period of time, but at the end they will come to the mean level. And um, this could explain partly this phenomenon or or this insight that you were explaining that maybe there was some, there was like a very motivating project or or somehow the the team were really, really working well together and and they were kind of like overachieving. And then then when the next project comes, so they actually just performing normally and it seems that they are underachieving
2: that yeah, that's true. I mean, that's a really good point.
1: It also reminds me of another uh, well-established—I don't know if it—I don't know if it's well-established fact, but at least has to be quoted code, often—is that a square root of the size of the team performs fifty percent of the work. So, if you have a team of nine people, then three people will do fifty percent of the work, and six people will do the other other fifty percent of the work, and well, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound too bad when you have reasonable size of teams, but imagine that in department level, like you have a department of 100 people and you're saying that 10 people will do half of the work. And that is quite astounding. And I don't know if that to what extent this holds true linearly between different sizes of teams, but that can be one that, especially when you think about the maturity, you just end up having more people in a more complex setup. And uh, and due to the many reasons, the productivity condenses to fewer individuals. That is probably as much a management issue than for, from the formal management as it is a, a sort of behavioral issue from from the team itself. But that also came to my mind
0: in, in behavioral sciences. We study a lot lot of situations where you spend enormous amount of resources to, for instance, developing a vaccine. It could take billions of euros, but what you don't spend time in and energy is how you invite people to get the vaccine. So when it comes to those, those themes, themes. So I mean, a lot of situations, the 99% is not enough. It's, it's, we are close, but we really need to have the 100% done also. So you really can't sack those six people out of the team of nine. Yeah.
1: Correct. Well, that, that would be the traditional stack ranking back in times, wouldn't it? Yeah. Which has already been debunked and uh, sort of dismissed for a long time ago.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, and for personal reason, I've been very interested in sort of what the cognitive, I mean, how what, what is motivating people? Because people are motivated by very different things. They are, I mean, I'm very motivated by getting things done. I'm, I'm not so interested in what I'm actually doing because I feel very proud when I do, when I have, have it done. But some other people, they get motivated by doing, making a difference. I mean, I'm, I'm building a great product here and it's going to make a huge difference and I'm important here. So, so it can depend a lot what, what people make people actually do the work. And, and some people are maybe a bit lazy when it comes to more admi- administrative tasks and, and documentation. They are brilliant when you, ask them to put down a piece of code but ask them to do anything else and it's gonna be a real real challenge but they are might be very valuable to the team performance as such like in the bigger picture
1: so maybe we leave that as an enigma for for all of us to try and figure out how to get teams self-organizing or not perform this has been a fantastic conversation Uh, it feels reinvigorating to remind myself of all of this um, after so many years of studying so Thank you, Marcus for joining.
0: Thanks for the invitation.
1: Thank you, Eva, po- for putting all of this together. And I think we have a great combination of of a sort of underlying theory of people's behavior and also what what really happens in product management. And we'll be putting all the referred content or referred papers in the show notes so people can then refer more information on, on whoever was ever mentioned in this.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, you too. Thank you for listening. I'm sure that the discussion raises a lot of thoughts. You can find links to the social media profiles of Eva and Markus in the show notes, alongside the referred books and other materials regarding their topic. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. Also check out the other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. Before we close off, I'd like to give floor back to Eva and Markus to introduce them properly. All I have to say to you now is take care of yourself and be vigilant of your biases.
2: My name is Eva Höglin and I'm an Atlassian expert consultant at Efficode, And I have many years of experience from software development and I think I've been having all roles you can imagine. I started out as a developer and then team lead, Scrum master, line manager, project manager, product manager. Product owner and delivery manager. So I've been very interested in learning new things and trying out different uh, roles. And uh, besides that, I've always been very interested in in processes. And I mean, throughout the years, many different software processes and methodologies has emerged. And I always jump directly onto them, and then I'm, you know, trying to introduce them. And then I realize. I'm sort of alone here i'm running and i look back and people are not there and that's why i'm become increasingly interested in human behavior and why is it that they don't listen to me when i tell them and i start running so that's sort of in short who i am and where my interest is lies in this area hello
0: everybody my name is Markus kanerva i'm a senior lecturer at uh, Laura, which is a applied science university here in Helsinki, Finland area. being been studying, teaching and applying behavioural sciences and um, behavioural insights for the past eight years. And um, I have to admit that I have zero knowledge about software engineering. But um, what is very, very fascinating about behavioural economics and behavioral sciences is that you can apply those basically in uh, any subject. For instance, I've been applying my knowledge to how to prevent type 2 diabetes, how to prevent food waste, how to communicate effectively during the um, corona crisis and and in in very, very different areas. So I was uh, very happy that Laura invited me to chat about um, software engineering as well.